Hello and welcome to Making Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams and not just eat sandwiches all day and think about video games. This episode, I'm going to be closing up my discussion of the 18th century, and I'm going to try to make a big claim for what I think the study of this century is all about. And if you hear weird background noise, there are kids outside my window playing some kind of game that involves screaming, so (laughs) there might be some disruption to the recording today. Uh, The 18th century has an identity crisis. Some historians want the 18th century to be an era of revolutions. They want it to be the century that cuts the world in two. On one end is modernity, the modern world of technology, production, literacy, democracy. And on the other side is the world of tradition, of agriculture, rural life, kings and queens and wars. Here in the 18th century is Watt and the steam engine. There's the first stirrings of nationalism with, like, the singing of rule Britannia for the very first time. There's the moment where modern politics really comes into its own with not only the American, but also the French and the Haitian revolutions. But from this perspective, the 18th century is kind of in between. A lot of it, the stuff that doesn't seem to presage the, you know, inevitable development of modernity is tossed out. We forget that Bolton and Watt, even though they make the first factory to make the steam engine, right next door, they have a fancy country house where they spend a lot of money having dinner parties trying to impress the local elites. We forget that the singing of Rule Britannia started out as a piece of a bad play that was performed in 1740 to honor the accession of an unpopular German king and was written by a Scottish playwright. We ignore the fact that the American Revolution was not at the time a revolution for democracy so much as it was a revolution about what it meant to be an Englishman. On the other hand, There's a bunch of historians who want to deflate the 18th century, to revise it and insist on its distinctiveness, to refuse to see it as this grand story of some kind of developing modernity. They point out that the great inventions of the century had little practical effect at the time except for some very, you know, small developments in the North. They argue that far from being proto-democrats eagerly sucking down their lock in human pain, most people were dyed-in-the-wool monarchists, arguing about the apostolic succession and worrying about what it meant to swear legitimacy to a king. Instead of seeing a sudden blooming of the public sphere all at once because of capitalism, they argue that the public sphere was really just you know, this deep tendency of civic participation put into new places and offered to new communities. But this move, too, is not entirely satisfactory. It simply moves the goalpost of modernity into the 19th century and ignores all of the new stuff in the 18th century that's actually happening. So when I look at it, I'm clearly on the side of the modernizers. I I think that the 18th century 
is novel, that something in Britain does happen there that is actually new, and that that something is important for us understanding what our modern world is. The question is how to clarify what that something is. It's obviously not so simple as saying the industrial and political revolutions. It has to be something deeper and more structural. What I think happens is an organizational revolution in which more and more people are able to participate in a growing number of formal organizations that help to increase their power and their reach. Many of these organizations are what we call organization creating organizations. They're organizations that teach people how to make organizations and thus spread the world of organizations ever further. We can think of this as a spread of social and cultural capital to more and more people, as networks of sociality and business and politics moving out across the country from the big cities, making people increasingly powerful as they get wrapped up in network effects. By network effect, I mean, of course, this peculiar feature of economies in the modern age where the more and more people you get in a network, the more valuable and powerful that network becomes. If you have a club with three people, it's not super valuable. A club of 100 is much more valuable. So I'm going to tell a story of this organizational revolution. It starts with a strong tradition of civil society. At least in the 17th century, there were many civic companies and societies in urban Britain, ranging from informal gatherings of friends who would have drinks and call themselves a company, to semi-formal societies where people would gather more regularly and maybe even have laws, to church societies where people would have like semi-legal charters, to actual chartered corporations that would have an active parliament and have particular rights and duties as if they were a virtual person. Um, the greatest example of these are the company states of early modern England, uh, what Hobbes called worms in the gut of the state. These chartered companies like the East India Company or the South Sea Company that not only did what companies we think do, like trade and travel and employ people, but also carried out a ton of state-like uh, activities like raising taxes, taking care of sick people, uh, communicating with people, all those kinds of bureaucratic things that we now think of as purely state-like. Oh, the big one, waging war. These company states did it in the 17th century. And there's an even longer history of what we might call capitalistic organizational innovations that come from at least medieval Italy. If you read Bradell or anybody else like that, you're going to get this in tons. Think of the power of the bills of exchange, of partnerships, of trading fairs, of double-entry bookkeeping account books. All of these allow large-scale coordination and trade at an increasing distance. This is the groundwork of the organizational revolution. So what's new in the 18th century? One of the big things is that these organizational forms are ported into different fields. Uh, we can think of this as a generalization of Weber's Protestant ethic argument. For Weber, 
uh, Protestant sects did particular things to help people prepare mentally and organizationally for capitalism. Protestant sects forced people to save for the future, to work hard, to have time discipline, to make an account of their lives. And these things, far be it from separating them from the world, made them incredibly successful in the world. This is a generalization of that argument. It suggests that organizations that were oriented for, say, different things like having fun or establishing some sort of civic uh, solidarity actually made people better at participating in proto-capitalism. And so we can chart the spread of organizations to a bunch of different domains. My favorite, of course, is the social clubs, but there's also new forms of religious activity. The big headline there is the rise of Methodism in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, there's also organizational changes in, say, the command of the Navy, where people are organized on more or less uh, uh, bureaucratic lines. Uh, there's the continued success of the East India Company, which we've talked about in previous episodes, has particularly modern organizational characteristics of decentralization. Um, you can also see this in large-scale activity, like uh, subscriptions that build hospitals, charities, reform societies, uh, water, canal building, all of these things that are essential for creating the infrastructure of modern daily life. And so on the whole, there's a vast increase in the kinds of things that civil society, that individuals, self-organized and self-sustaining organizations can take on. This is different from the past. I just want to make this really clear. Because in all of these kinds of organizations, people are kind of replaceable. Before these organizations, uh, say in a partnership, the people who make up the, the, the organization are essential to it. If you have a partnership and one person dies, you have to reconstitute the partnership. It's like a marriage. You can't get married to another person without filling out more paperwork. These organizations, however, are not about the individuals, but about the roles that those individuals fill. If a person in a chartered company dies, the chartered company does not need to get a new charter. It simply needs to fill the role that is left blank. And these allow the corporations or these new organizations life outside of the individual. It allows them to, to become self-sustaining, self-replicating, growing. And add to this the fact that they can help people make their collective action more powerful at greater distances and with greater regularity, and you see why they had such success. Well, then why weren't they successful earlier? There are a number of structural developments in the 18th century that make this organizational revolution possible. The first is the expansion of the market. We've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But the big story is that people are enmeshed in larger and larger credit networks that span increasingly large distances. And they're also trading and buying things that are shipped from much greater distances. Your uh, merchant in Hull, for example, might owe money and be owed money by people in London. And they might be owed money and owe money to people in London 
because at their store they carry new kinds of goods like you know cotton garments or tea or coffee that are you know shipped and produced and made in very 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 like geographically wide scopes part of this as well is a decline a relative decline in old forms of production rural agriculture goes into a slow decline as uh, the proportion of people working in it decreases uh, urban apprenticeships are also going into a slow decline but this means that people are not not working this means that people are working in new kinds of things in rural industry for example or in new kinds of companies in the city and Let's talk about the city because the city is another structural development that encourages the development of these organizations. The big things is that cities are growing, not just London. Uh, it used to be just London was growing. London remains stably, uh, uh, it retains a stable share of Britain's urban population. About 11% of all uh, British people uh, live in London for the entire century. But other cities start to grow relatively, not just absolutely. And this means that more and more people are living in denser and denser areas, which means that they need to deal with the problem of strangers in their social life. City dwellers need to make friends. They need to know who to marry. They need to know who to trust. And they need to do this with people who they don't know. And so these organizations start to become very important for social life because they act as independent ways of uh, measuring or of adjudicating trust. We also have to point out the role of large state bureaucracies because as the state is growing at this time, they're creating these incredibly complicated, well-oiled bureaucratic machines that are served to coordinate incredibly big, long-distance, high-valued stuff. We can think of the rise of the tax offices in 18th century Britain and uh, point out that lots of the people who we know about in other domains were originally trained as tax collectors. Thomas Paine, um, the legendary political theorist who may have, you know, single-handedly made the American Revolution with his uh, uh, pamphlet Common Sense, he started out as an excise officer, and his first published piece was an argument that excise officers should get paid more. What does being an excise officer teach you? It teaches you uh, self-control, literacy, numeracy, hard work, and bureaucracy. Similarly, the victualling office in the Navy uh, had a lot of the characteristics that we identify with 19th and 20th century for-profit organizations, like forwards and backwards integration. So I want to close with two things. First, I want to just point out how this is important, and then I'm going to give an example for when we might see the tide turning. When does the organizational revolution have its apotheosis? So the organizational revolution is important because it lets people do more and at greater distances. And I want to point out here, we're talking about people. We're talking about independent people who are not necessarily connected with the state or with the elites. It's just anybody who gets connected with these organizations has a new kind of power. And 
We can see that in tons of different ways. In the information networks that people say fostered the Industrial Revolution, in the new kinds of cultural networks that uh, uh, went around new urban areas where people started to discuss things in polite culture, in coffee houses, in new religious communities. This is all over. The story of the 18th century is the story of individuals gaining power through civil society. And this is good because it increases the variety of human life, it uh, allows people to be individuals, it helps people unshackle themselves from the uncomfortable bounds of tradition. I think that in the end, this is one of the key turning points in the history of human freedom, if you believe that there is such a thing. But it has some big negative sides too. One is that the increase of people's ability to have power at a distance means that they can have a certain kind of moral alienation to their day-to-day -day life. A great example is in these tropical commodities that suddenly find themselves on everybody's dinner table. It is entirely possible to forget that the sugar that you use to sweeten your tea is made through the sweat of slaves. It's entirely possible to forget that the tea that you drink is paid for by silver that is mined by slaves in Peru. It's entirely possible to act as an agent of an organization and screw people over or do immoral things and justify it as simply acting on another person's behalf. The rise of the artificial person of the organization is connected with the rise of people being able to bracket out questions of morality in key points of their lives. And also, the rise of the organization where people have power is intimately connected with the exclusion of people from these positions of power. As certain parts of life become more open, lots of people are not allowed in. The big story here, of course, is women. Women are not allowed in, by and large, to the new places of social and cultural capital. They're not allowed in coffee houses. They're not allowed in clubs. They're not allowed to make partnerships or sign contracts. They are barred from the modern world, consciously barred, intentionally barred. We might be able to justify that from the lights of people in the 18th century, but it led down the road to severe disamenities for women, severe exclusion from the community in a way that was, I think, novel. And the other story is that when poor people start to leverage the power of organizations to get themselves uh, together to make claims about what they should have by their rights, it scares the status quo, it scares the elites, it scares the middle class. And this leads, starting in 1793, to an era of repression, where all of these tools of uh, social organization come under strict regulation from the state. So let's get a date. All these other revolutions have dates. We can point to uh, the 
time when Watt first made his steam engine as the date of the Industrial Revolution. We can point to 1776 for the American Revolution. We can point to 1789 for the French Revolution. When does my organizational revolution begin? I'm going to say 1763 and the Seven Years' War. I think that in the Seven Years' War, the impact of these new organizations is entirely evident. It is the organizational capacity of the British Navy that determines Britain's success in the Seven Years' War. In the Seven Years' War, in its aftermath, organizations are the primary way for people making new claims on politics. The Wilkesite movements, uh, organized by uh, soci for, for societies of constitutional information, and so Wilkes societies are all using this new kind of organizational capacity to gather together people who had not been gathered together, to make claims for much larger geographical uh, solidarities than ever before, saying that we, all of the supporters of Wilkes, all the people who, you know, drink 45 healths to Wilkes and by his commemorative plates, we are all a unit. We are all gathered together and agreeing about basic problems and basic solutions. And after this date, after 1763, when there are political problems, they are increasingly about distant problems that are created and mediated by organizations. They're increasingly about stories that people read in the newspaper, not problems that they see firsthand. They're increasingly not food riots that people identify from their daily life. They are increasingly processions and protests about news that they hear through new kinds of media. And increasingly, people are protesting not to make claims about their particular interest as individuals, but rather on behalf of the organizations that they believe are representing their interests. Chartists, anti-corn law leaguers, uh, people who want to reform manners or, or, or popular culture or whatever. All of these people are marching and acting because of or on behalf of organizations. And after 1763, the geographic scope of the British Empire continues to grow. And so you have a continuing feedback loop between organizational capacity and uh, organizational power. And I just want to close by cutting to the end of this story of 1832, the Great Reform Act. And here we can see it as the result of these new kinds of organizations making a new political nation, making a nation in which people communicate through newspapers, through organizations, through epistolary networks, through talking in the public sphere, through identifying themselves not as citizens of particular cities, but as citizens of a nation that's knit together by information. This is a nation of associations, of newspapers, of books. It is not a nation of orders or even a nation of classes. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell a friend, tweet me at Mackie Teacher at M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you to Jonathan Lear for our music and Duncan Barton for our image. I'll be back tomorrow talking about the 19th century.